What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. With me is Jared. How's it going, Jared? It is going well. I'm feeling a little spooky today. <laughs> ready for Halloween? I am ready for Halloween. It is my favorite, my second favorite, um, what do you call it? Ho- holiday? Holiday. That's what <laughs> yeah. it's called. All yes. Hallows' Eve. The, All Hallows' Eve. Yep. The day when the fa- fabric between this world and the next is thinnest. Ghosts and goblins lurk the uh, streets. In fact, that isn't just something I'm saying. It's something that almost half of Americans believe is like real, like for real, for real. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Are ghosts real? And if not, what could possibly be another explanation for this? Not just almost half of them. But almost a fifth of them believe they've had an experience or an encounter with a ghost, right? Right. So we're gonna show why each and every one of them is a liar. Well, at least that's our—that's what we thought we were gonna do. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into that, as always, we have a fallacy for you. Today's fallacy of the day is the argument from ignorance fallacy, mm, also known as the appeal to ignorance. So this fallacy occurs when someone asserts that a proposition of theirs is true because you haven't proved it's false or vice versa. Maybe they assert it's false because you haven't proved it's true. For example, uh, I know that ghosts are real because nobody's conclusively uh, proved to me that they're false. You know, that would be an Mm -hmm. example of an argument from ignorance. Basically you are relying on ignorance, a lack of knowledge on a topic to substantiate your knowledge. Yeah, so you know you can't prove that A is false, therefore A is true, right? That's the well, that's, that, the, that's the, the logic that's being used here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now you have to be careful with this. This is uh, asserting that something is true without evidence on the basis that there isn't evidence against it, and that's fallacious. But there are non-fallacious arguments that kind of superficially take the same form, but are perfectly reasonable. Uh, So, for example, uranium-238 will eventually transform into lead-239, but that takes billions of years. And, you know, so we're not going to be around. You and I are not going to be around to observe this happening. But I would assert that eventually, on a long enough timeline, all of the uranium is going to turn into lead. Now, I assert that on the basis that it has been proved false, hasn't been proved false this one happened so it seems like an appeal to ignorance right uh the in fact if you dig deeper when i'm i'm not appealing to the fact that it hasn't been proved false i'm appealing to the uniformity of physical laws uh to the uh to the evidence that this is in fact the way things go there's a large amount of positive confirming evidence to this so i am conditionally believing that this is true until such a time as I have a good reason to believe it's false. So it's not that there's no evidence either way. So I'm going to go with what I want. There is evidence, no disconfirming evidence. So I'm going to go with the weight of evidence. You're not saying it's true because you can't prove it's false. You're saying it's true because there's reasons for that to be, you have other stuff behind your therefore, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. So, when you start talking about uranium and lead, I'm just like, yeah, I, I believe you. You shouldn't believe me because I told you the wrong isotope of lead just just to. Uh, oh, my <laughs> goodness. It is an isotope of lead. It's a different isotope of lead. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, there you go. That's what you get for not being skeptical. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of being the, skeptical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, OK, so uh, as we mentioned at the top, 
almost one in five Americans report that they personally have had an encounter of some kind with a ghost. That's according to Pew Research. And uh, they surveyed this, sur- this that particular survey is from 2015, but there are other surveys from other places in the world and other times that come to about the same conclusion. So yeah. this is a very widespread belief. You know, half of people in America believe that they've done it, and a fifth of them believe they've personally encountered it. And we today are not going to be able to conclusively prove to you, to anybody, that ghosts don't exist. Right? So what do we as skeptics do with this? Like, well, to start with, even if ghosts are real, even if all these people are correct, that they have, in fact, encountered ghosts, it's reasonable that, like, not every single alleged ghost encounter is, in fact, a ghost, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly, some of them are mistaken, at least some of the time. And so for any particular situation, it makes sense to dig into it deeper and say, well, is there an alternative explanation, right? And maybe if there's a mundane explanation for, like, all of it, then we should just go with that one and just chuck the ghosts out the window entirely. Yeah, I think it's important to realize, too, like, even if we can't definitively say that something is, you know, doesn't exist, uh, we can use our, our skeptical minds to sort of lean towards one way or another. And Right. In this case, if for ghosts to exist, there'd have to be a, some sort of life after death, which implies that there would be a supernatural component to reality beyond what we currently know and have evidence for. And so that is a big claim. Like we have the natural world. You want to add a whole nother layer of causality, like some kind of immaterial substance that these ghosts are for, persistence of consciousness without a mind, all these other things. That's something we would reasonably need evidence for. I mean, if we're naturalist or, you know, mythological naturalists or whatever term you want to use, like, the natural explanation is more probable than a supernatural explanation. And um, a lot of these claims seem testable too. Um, so we right. can look into those. But. but like we said, this is very common. So one example of how this uh, is encountered, not just among people who like believe in ghost supernatural, but even among those who don't is post bereavement hallucinations. There's a lot of good uh, evidence and documentation of this. We'll probably put some in the description below. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to pin down exactly like what percentage of people have experienced this, but studies vary from between like 30 and 60% of people who recently lost a loved one, like a, a family member or a spouse uh, have some sort of experience that uh, tells them or, or they perceive as their loved one being around. Like they feel their presence, they might feel a touch, they might hear something. Uh, An example of someone that this happened to who doesn't even believe Ghost is Real is Vice Rhino, who I'm sure uh, you're familiar with. If you're not, you should go, after you're done with this video, go check out his channel because it's awesome. How did you find this if you didn't know about Vice Rhino? (laughs) Yeah, I I, I suspect that that's an extremely small, perhaps zero population. But uh, he recently lost his wife and he has talked about on his channel having experiences where like he believed his what he was like wrong his he was so sure that his wife was not dead that he was like how am i gonna go tell everybody that i was totally wrong about my wife dying i mean it's it's important to realize too this like you said this is not just a religious thing this is religious non-religious so that's that's a very common thing that happens and like jordan said this takes the form of like 
could be auditory hallucinations. It could be the feeling of somebody being there, but that's the normal thing, right? So, um, and it's and it's re- um, prevalent across all cultures too. So it's not just American cultures. This is all cultures. Right, all cultures, and pretty much as far back as we have recorded history. Uh, Irving Finkel, who is an expert in cuneiform script and Babylonian like exorcism rites, uh, he said that the the oldest recorded uh, text that he could find on exercising ghosts was a tablet from the 15th century BCE. So over 3000 years ago, there's like an instruction tablet on how to get rid of ghosts. So clearly it's, it's a very old belief indeed. Uh, I, when researching this, I found a really cool letter that from a first century Roman named Pliny the younger, if you've heard us talk about Jesus mythicism or the history of the Rome of the Christian church, you might've heard us mention Pliny the younger because he has some writings relevant to that. Well, this guy, Pliny, uh, he was writing to a friend of his named Sura, and it's pretty awesome. You, you can Google this. Uh, I, I will put a link in the description, too, if you want to read this letter, too. He's writing to his friend to relate to him a ghost story that he has heard, he being Pliny, uh, about a person who bought a haunted house in Greece. And the like. there is a ghost that was like bearded and had these chains and would like rattle the chains and scare people. And so this philosopher bought the house because he was like, you know, more rational. Right. And he's like writing on his desk and the ghost comes up to him. He tells him to wait a second. (laughs) And then then he goes and like follows the ghost to the yard. The ghost like points to a spot, disappears. And then they dig it up and lo and behold, there's like a corpse there with like, iron fetters on it and then you know they put it to rest and the ghost goes away and uh pliny also relates a couple other ghost stories that like that were related to him from his slaves like people having you know some like uh his slaves like reported that people were cutting their hair in the night and that was like a ghost you know <laughs> uh and he he ends the letter uh by asking sir to debunk this for him he says i beg then that you will apply your learning to this question because it merits your prolonged and profound consideration. Uh, And though you should, after your manner, argue on both sides, yet I hope you will throw your weightiest reasons onto the scale, lest you dismiss me in suspense and uncertainty. Uh, Whereas I consult you on purpose to determine my doubts. And he opens this letter saying, hey, I want to know what you think about specters, whether you think they exist, whether they are actually real things, measure of divinity, or they are, quote, only the false impressions of a terrified imagination. So this is a letter from like 2000 years ago, but like absent, like the weird language, because it's a translation, I could totally see this like on a Facebook post, like, you know, sharing a story that they heard. It really does make you feel a sense of like, you know, oneness with people in general, like they're, they're asking the same questions we are, you know, 2000 years ago. So it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Interestingly too, is uh, Pliny says that he just accepted that because other people said so, like, you know, yeah, Exactly. He says in his letter, hey, here's a story. And he relates the whole story. And he says, I believe this because other people told it to me. Literally, <laughs> that's skeptical. what he says. Like, <laughs> yeah. So other people told me. So that must be true, right? <laughs> like, so yeah. It's, yeah, people don't change. So other than like these common uh, appearances or occurrences that people say they've had with ghosts or like bereavement things, which you can't really prove or disprove, um, what are some of the the things that are actually testable or that, that we've come across that we could look into as skeptics. So 
in researching this and like approaching this topic, there was one that I remembered having heard of where an engineer like had basically encountered a ghost and it turned out to be low frequency sound, right? And so uh, I just kind of vaguely remembered hearing about this on the internet. So I tracked it down. This story uh, comes from a guy named Vic Tandy. And I found his publication in a journal in kind of air quotes. So I, the story here, I'll relate to the story to you and then I'll tell you what like put up my sensors. So this guy, Vic Tandy, is like working in a machine shop and people in his lab had been reporting like feelings of like depression, feeling afraid and like uncomfortable, like to the point where like they had to leave work. And at one point, Vic was working late at night and he started having the same sort of feelings and he like kind of brushed it off and like got a cup of coffee. And then he saw like a figure at the edge of his vision. Lately, like, like this just shadowy figure and he turned his head, it was gone. Now that would be enough to convince most people that like, or maybe not most people, but the people inclined to believe in this at least that there was an actual apparition. But he went about investigating it and he reports that uh, he found like a blade that was vibrating and it led him to find that there was a standing sound wave, a, low, a very low frequency noise resulting from this faulty motor. They fixed the motor, sound is gone, boom. So are the feelings. Seems so the like idea a, is like there was a there was a noise or a frequency that was making humans perceptible to sense things that weren't there. Exactly. And the paper that I'm getting this from is The Ghost in the Machine. It is published in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research in 1998. And that was my first clue that all might not be well with the word world. <laughs> because that's like psychical, psych, like psychics? And so I Not couldn't cyclical. Do they spell it wrong? Like... Yeah. Yeah. I was like, and, and it, it looks like somebody's like, you know, college paper or whatever. Right. Uh, and so in investigating this, which I came into this expecting this, like, oh man, I've got this great story. Perfect debunking of ghosts. It's amazing. And digging into this, I found that this paper was only this one guy. He like had a friend of his that they, they didn't have any rigorous uh, lab equipment where they measured this. And uh, the journal in which they publish it is, they say a peer-reviewed journal, but I can't find, like, it's not in the master's journals list, doesn't have an impact factor, so that's really sketchy. Uh, but I did find other people basically critiquing his work, and it hasn't been able to be replicated. Uh, so That's that the was, biggest thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you can't replicate the... That was frustrating. Uh, but I did find a legit, actual peer-reviewed paper where... Uh, some people looking into this tried to basically test Tandy's uh, assertion that it was low frequency noise. So they called it the Haunt Project. And this one, much better. This one is in an actual peer reviewed journal, uh, not, not a fake one. Uh, and Psychical. Yeah. So this one is published in Cortex. Uh, it's from 2009. And what they did was they tried to build like a haunted room using things like low frequency noise, using electromagnetic fields, uh, and also not using those things. A test, like, could we reproduce these feelings of a presence or visual hallucinations or things with the stuff that Tandy and others are saying causes it? Spoiler, in case you want to go read it. No, they didn't find any of that. Uh, there was no uh, link between using the noise 
that Tandy claimed to have experienced and the reporting of these feelings. Now, people did report the feelings. People reported feeling another presence or like having chills or like all this other stuff. But the thing that predicted them doing that was not the low frequency noise. What was predictive was the beliefs that they had going into it. So if mm. they themselves believed in ghosts and believed in the supernatural and those sort of things, they were more likely to report having felt this in a random room that these scientists had constructed for the purpose. There's also, um, depending on if the subjects knew why they were going into this test, you know, that could affect their, whether they're expecting something or not. Yeah. They, um, so they knew that they were going and they were supposed to be reporting abnormal feelings and like, show us on the map where in the room you felt it. Um, <laughs> show me where they touched you. <laughs> right. Right. They, they didn't uh, give them the, the, the standardized test for paranormal feelings, which is it's the Australian sheep goat scale. ASGS is the official <laughs> one. There's a lot of them. That's yeah, one yeah. of the things. And I think it's, it's pretty cool that uh, the ASGS is a paranormal measure Australian because a guy who made it was Australian and sheep goat from the biblical parable of the sheeps and the goats with the sheeps being believers and the goats being non-believers. So uh, <laughs> they didn't give them that scale until afterwards. They didn't want to like prime them to, Think certain things, right, but the yeah. people did know going in, they're supposed to like feel ghostly stuff. So yeah, that is definitely a confounding piece. There's something intuitive about this too. That so I don't know if if you ever had like a, a spooky basement, it 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 seems plausible that the atmosphere of a room or a place could elicit feelings or something. So I can understand there's a basis for this, right? I yeah. mean, I've experienced that myself. So, uh, so that was just almost a little bit peek behind the curtain. This is something I thought was a slam dunk turned out on upon investigation, not a <laughs> slam dunk at all. Now we're going to move in the stuff that was substantiated. So uh, yeah. another type of uh, <laughs> ghostly encounter that some people claim to have is uh, an encounter in their sleep. So this is common, uh, especially common in, in uh, Asian cultures. There's specific kinds of demons that are associated with this, but people will report like waking up and like feeling something's on their chest, or maybe something is like standing over them or choking them, difficulty breathing. They can't move. They can't, you know, get out of the situation. Obviously very scary. Yeah. That's why they call it sleep paralysis because they are paralyzed. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Jared, you found a meta-analysis and we love meta-analyses here. Yeah. So uh, it's actually a meta review uh, versus analysis. So what they did, so I think there's a difference between analysis and a review um, where the meta review is going through like all of the recent literature on it to try to coalesce what people are saying versus actually like parsing through and doing like graphs to like say, basically combine all the data. All that being said, the article of neuropsychiatric disease and treatment, this article was focused mostly for the use of um, practitioners. So people who are treating people who have uh, sleep paralysis is a disorder. And so the point of the article was to go through, say, this is all the current research that we could find on it. This is the review. And then they were trying to offer suggestions for practitioners to actually treat their patients. So uh, really good source of material here. Um, so how common is this in the population? So actually, it's not as common as what you might think, but the prevalence in patients in this study reviewed was 7.6% of the general population have experienced at least one episode of sleep paralysis uh, during their lifetime. 
which I mean, almost 10%. Um, it's not a lot, but that's more than what I would, would have thought. Uh, interestingly enough, though, uh, in psychiatric patients, that number shoots up to almost 32%. So there's definitely a correlation uh, between one's mental health and the prevalence of experiencing this sleep paralysis. So now playing devil's advocate here, one could say, okay, maybe the sleep paralysis is in fact some kind of ghost or demon. And it's just maybe we're misattributing it to sure. uh, a disorder or perhaps people with certain types of brain functions are more susceptible to demons or something. I don't know. Uh, ghosts, ghouls, maybe <laughs> really like people yeah. in psychiatric wards. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things that the review found was that uh, people who had, who fell in this camp of 7.6% had higher risk factors. And so all of these risk factors include something natural. So uh, hypertension, uh, hyperosomnia, insufficient sleep syndrome, narcolepsy, obstructive sleep apnea, alcohol use, uh, and a couple other things. So all things that affect one's sleep, like the quality and quantity of sleep that you're getting, uh, increase your chances of having sleep paralysis. So I don't know. Yeah. See, see, so if we're, if we're weighing like, yeah, it could be that ghosts just really like people with sleep apnea or maybe something if it's messing up with your sleep. So, so what's the explanation that they have? Like what is this, the medical explanation for sleep paralysis? So basically the medical explanation is that there is something going on to where your body is not getting. So when you understand like sleep cycles, like you have REM. So when you're in deep REM sleep, that's when your brain is like your eyes are just flicking off. That's when you're having like your really intense dreams. Uh, for these patients who aren't getting really good sleep, their body is in a state of REM, but they physically awake. So something is causing them to come out of that sleep really fast. And what happens is the brain has a hard time parsing out. Like I was just in this dream state, but I'm awake. And so now the brain is trying to grasp those two worlds, the physical world and reality versus the dream world. And it can't understand those. And so that's why they're, they're paralyzed because their body's still sleeping basically, but their brain is still in dreaming, but they can see what's going on. So um, that's, it's really interesting uh, phenomena actually. So um, it's I've almost, never yeah. It's almost like part of their brain is awake, but part of it's still asleep. Yeah. And it's like trying to jump back and forth and your brain is literally like going schizo. It's like, I have no idea how to process inf this information. So um, super cool. Uh, I'm sure it's super scary though. Like I've never had to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to me, uh, but it's a I've, interesting. When I've been super sick, when I run a, like a really high fever, I have a, a frequent hallucination where I can't move. And there's like a demon or evil presence that's approaching mm. me and it's getting closer and closer. And I know, I know in this moment, if it touches me, I'm going to die and it'll get right up next to me and then go away and do it over and over again. So I really don't like having really high fevers. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I can see like, so if you think about how the brain works and how sleep works too, you've probably experienced this where you're like, falling into a deep sleep and there's something in your sleep that jars you and you like, you physically move your leg real fast or you, you feel like you're falling out of bed and you wake up and you actually do like this jerky yeah. movement or you have to pee really bad. Right. And there's water. So like there is a connection between that. So it's not that hard to understand how we could naturally jump into this, this like a, basically you're having a nightmare that, but you're awake. Um, so, so 
moving from this specific type of uh, ghostly encounter, which seems to have a very well-defined and reasonably well-understood mechanism behind it, uh, there are tons, a huge variety of different kinds of ghostly encounters. And uh, for all my digging, I couldn't find like a really rigorous investigation of them. A lot of people are looking into the low frequency noise thing, but that didn't really, wasn't really panning out. Some people looking to the EM thing. Turns out that scientists aren't like super worried about investigating ghosts. Yeah. That's the, the one common thing that Jordan and I thought like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be a easy episode to research for. Like people love ghosts. Yeah. There can be all this kind of research out there. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> but while they may not love ghosts, psychologists really like people who think they're a ghost. <laughs> so I finally managed to find a good paper, a meta-analysis, and uh, I'm, I'm, over, I'm still excited because I found it like today as I was like scrambling to find something for <laughs> We're this We're like, we got to come episode, up with some stuff. Right? Yeah. I found a meta-analysis. It was published by uh, Dean C.E. Akhtar et al. It was published this year in May in PLOS One. Link will be in the doobly-doo below. And uh, what a meta-analysis is, like Jerry was saying earlier, they basically scoop up all of the data from a huge time period and try to mash it all together and find meta-trends, macro-trends beyond all of these uh, different studies. So this one was the first of its kind in examining this question uh, in 30 years. And the question they're examining is, are there trends in the brain function of people who believe in the paranormal? So is there something explanatory, something associated with belief in ghosts and magic and the supernatural? Is there something with somebody's brain that's doing that? So this study covered 1980 to 2020, 21,000 participants in all of the studies that it were included. And uh, they had a lot of really cool findings. They found that, uh, I'm just going to kind of run through the, the list real quick. So they found evidence of perceptual biases. So people who believed in the paranormal, uh, they tended to prefer speed over accuracy when they were doing tests. So if they were doing tests to uh, like giving them a sequence of numbers and they'd like predict the next thing or recognizing a pattern or rec trying to pick out something from a field of noise, they were more likely if they believed in the paranormal to come up with false positives. And interestingly, that was particularly true when those patterns involved human faces or agents. So like living creatures of some sort, believers were significantly more likely to have a false positive in identification than skeptics were. Hmm. And it's interesting that this indicated maybe some kind of like mental trade-off. The speed was valued over accuracy. So they were getting the benefit, a quick answer, losing a correct answer in some some instances they also found that believers in the paranormal quote uh showed a consistent bias towards both confirmatory and disconfirmatory evidence basically jumping to conclusions like latching on to to evidence even if it wasn't uh necessarily good evidence uh reasoning skills uh there was some association there it was kind of inconclusive they did find uh reasonably good evidence that Paranormal beliefs seem to be associated with intuitive thinking styles. Again, quicker, more driven by uh, emotions, uh, also associated with creativity. And finally, they found that paranormal beliefs were associated with the creation of false memories. So this wasn't uniform from all studies, but uh, three of the four memory studies that they looked at uh, 
trying to, to find this link, reported that people who have paranormal beliefs had an increased tendency to create false memories, which is something the human brain can do. Uh, though I should caution that they couldn't always replicate that finding. So take that particular one with a grain of salt. But the conclusion of the paper, the, the basic story is that uh, all of these studies from the paper, quote, converge on an underlying nonspecific cognitive deficit or collection of deficits. They said there's not one uh, single area of cognitive deficit that is associated with paranormal beliefs. And that to explain this, like, so basically it's like all, all of these deficits in cognitive function were associated to some degree or another with paranormal beliefs. So that's the conclusion. That's what the data tells them. From that, their hypothesis is that perhaps all of these things are like uh, pointing to an underlying trend, like what these things have in common is they're the basically the human brain trying to find patterns, trying to do various tasks that have to do with fluid thinking. And so it could be that different people have different kinds of cognitive deficits, but the amalgamation of all of that is leads to the same sort of pattern recognition or faulty pattern recognition that uh, is included with paranormal beliefs. That's a pretty cool uh, thing. I mean, the one that you found that paper too, but it really makes sense when you think about, like we've talked about this before too. Like humans are pattern-seeking beings, right? So, right. If you, and especially if you have any sort of cognitive deficits that are aligned with that sort of pattern-seeking thing, like the one term, uh, pareidolia. You know, so you have a tendency to perceive like a specific or often meaningful image in like random, ambiguous, you know, visual yeah, patterns. Yeah, which is just like, like if you've ever looked at clouds and yeah. which are completely random, it's like, oh look, that one looks kind of like a lion. You know, that's. Yeah. You know, humans do that kind of stuff all the time. Uh, there's the classic explanation for why humans are pattern-seeking animals, which Michael Shermer loves to bring up, the whole lion in the bush. If you never heard it, basically, uh, if you imagine you're an ape hominid on the plains of savannah and you're, like, wandering around and you hear, like, a rustle in the grass, do you assume it was, like, the wind or a lion, an agent, a creature that has intention? If you assume it's a creature and you run away and you're wrong, no big deal. Like you ran, but I mean, you're alive, right? If you assume right. it's not a creature and it is, you're going to get eaten. So assuming agency is a low cost mistake. If you're wrong, it's not a big deal. And so we are the descendants of people who made low cost mistakes because the people who made high cost mistakes died. So uh, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it, it and, and you can see this kind of in animals today super skittish you know anytime there's any kind of rustle they run away because <laughs> they don't want to get eaten you know you can see this in, in yourself i mean literally the story is telling about like the basement when i was a kid so i go down to the basement it's dark you know the heat pumps making noise down there i can assume that it's a ghost run upstairs and be safe or i could go down to the basement and i could get abducted by a ghost like right. i ran away i'm still here so like there you go <laughs> uh and so what this paper doesn't mean it doesn't mean that people who have paranormal beliefs are stupid or like brain damaged in some way. <laughs> yeah, we don't we're not saying cognitive deficits like oh like only smart yeah. people are. Yeah. Cognitive <laughs> deficit has has a specific term in this, right. this context <laughs> yes. that uh there are certain kinds of thinking that uh some people's brains are not as skilled at as other people's brains. And in this particular type of cognitive deficit that has to do with pattern recognition, that has to do with uh, understanding randomness and like being able to pick out what is actually random for what see 
like putting intentionality on random things. Those sort of things are correlated with paranormal beliefs, which makes sense because if you are likely to infer agency where there isn't any, if you're like, if you're not good at, at um, determining that this is just random versus it's something that a human or an agent of some sort did. Right. If, you, if these are the sort of mistakes you make, it's very easy to see how that could translate in your life to some kind of noise happens or you see a, something shift in your periphery and your brain sees a human face where there is not, in fact, a human face uh, yeah. and that sort of thing. It's very easy to see how that could lead to paranormal beliefs. One of the things I didn't mention from that paper with sleep paralysis was they talk about how like uh, people who experience that have higher levels of like disassociation, imaginativeness, uh, beliefs in the paranormal or supernatural. So they all affect that. But one thing they pointed out was that you can't just make like a causal link to that. It's not clear. So it's like the chicken and egg thing. Is it the fact that people who have these cognitive deficits or people who have like, you know, disassociation, uh, believe in ghosts are more likely to experience this or is it because they experience it they're more likely to believe in it it's kind of like you don't know which one comes first and it's kind of hard to to make that delineation i think so but what this does tell us is at least gives us a natural plausible explanation uh for humans experiencing this random things happen all the time people have an, another common uh experience among humans is you tend to remember hits and not misses you know, mm -hmm. so you don't remember all of the little noises that happened throughout the day that you heard and ignored. You remember the one that freaked you out, you know, yeah. you, you don't remember the, the thousand creaks that the house has had until it sounded like someone was saying your name, you know, that's the <laughs> one you remember. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, also too, when you think about this type of thing, it's very common in our culture, like it's almost like romantic to think about ghosts too. And there's, well, it's, it's almost comforting in a way yeah. because for ghosts to be real, it entails that there is some kind of continued conscious experience after death for at least some people. Right. And I mean, I, that I don't want to die. I don't want to see conscious functioning. Right. It would be awesome if ghosts existed because that would at least give me some pathway. Maybe I'd go rattle some chains for all eternity <laughs> or whatever. You know, I'd much prefer that to what I actually think is going to happen, which is which is nothing. A whole lot of nothing forever. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't know. I think I would prefer the nothing, but that's me personally. But yeah, I, I get it. It's comforting to think that too, and also that our loved ones may may go on or be with us, except for when we're doing the dirty or something like that. But you know. Well, I mean, obviously you don't get ghosts then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, what's that movie with the, uh, with the, the clay pot? I believe it's called Ghosts. Is it Ghosts? <laughs> that, <that's laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Demi Moore I, I, and I've uh, never seen Whoopi Goldberg. It, but the intro to the Braveheart VHS I had had an ad for that movie. So that scene I am intimately familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> watch Braveheart that often huh it's like, it's, I did yeah. uh there may be a scene early in the Braveheart movie that would have been of interest to a uh a teenage, teenage boy, boy. <laughs> right yeah if you've never seen Braveheart watch it and you'll figure out real quick which one I'm talking yeah. about so uh that's all we have to summarize uh ghosts 
beliefs are extremely common in America. About 20% of Americans think they have personally have encountered a ghost. And this is not just an American thing. It goes all the way back to Babylon and the Romans were talking about it and also thinking they may have been nonsense. And uh, while we weren't able to find like a definitive debunking of ghosts, which isn't surprising because if they're like ectoplasmic figment beings, it'd be pretty hard to put them in a lab, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and it turns out there's not a lot of funding for debunking ghosts. But uh, what we did find were some natural explanations for certain kinds of ghost encounters, sleep paralysis being one of them, and also associations with certain cognitive deficits that have to do with pattern recognition, for seeing agency where there isn't any, for not really grasping randomness. Uh, that ties really well into why you might have these sort of perceived encounters in your life. Notice we didn't bring up any sort of like history channel ghost hunter shows or anything like that, because one, they're not done in a skeptical manner Two, they're not good science. I mean, it's just hogwash. So it's, yeah, that's that, that would be the worst source. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's even worse than the journal for psychical research over there. Those guys are actually trying to be scientific, you know, right? Like it's not a very prestigious journal for obvious reasons, but like, they are trying to investigate this in some kind of rigorous way. It's not, you know, you got shaky cam over here and Fred's over there banging on the pipe off screen, you know, like, come on. <laughs> yeah. So be before you, you get out there and you're like, Oh, but what about this video? Like, you know, before you come at us, think about Try, your just, source just material, <laughs> spend a couple minutes imagining, is there any way this could possibly not be true? Anything at all? <laughs> really dig deep guys. <laughs> well. uh and but if if you do have a ghost encounter we'd love to hear about it in yeah. vivid excruciating detail in the comments below uh so throw there if you enjoy this please uh hit the like button subscribe to see more stuff uh coming up soon uh i don't know what we're doing next week but i know coming next month we're gonna be having david fitzgerald on who is a prominent mythicist author so we're gonna talk to him about how uh, he is wrong, and Jesus definitely exists. So that's going to be a fun conversation. That's happening November twenty second. <laughs> yeah, definitely, probably for sure, absolutely exists. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, yeah, so that's what we've got coming. Oh, also, we've I think we've mentioned this before, but we have promised that we are going to look into the Shroud of Turin. So we're going to be debunking that in the next couple months, like for real debunking this time. The people have spoken. And for some reason, this this piece of cloth is super important. So we're going to look into it as good skeptics. I'm not super hey. optimistic, but <laughs> <laughs> there it is. So while you're waiting for that, guys, uh, check out our past stuff. And remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.